a year ago, we began our exploration into the Gospel of John, and we're going to take a bit of a break for the next several weeks. We'll rejoin the Gospel of John in November. In the meantime, I'm going to preach from the Psalms, and then when we get into October, I'll do a couple of special, special messages that will lead us up to an emphasis that will begin in the month of November, and you'll learn more about that in the days ahead. So open up your Bibles to Psalm 27. And we're going to read what is an incredibly encouraging and I think relevant psalm as we consider the lives that we live, the struggles that we have, the challenges that we face, and the reality of a God who is and provides and walks with us every step of the way. And many, many people struggle with understanding and appropriating the presence of God and all that He is into the daily life. So as we look at Psalm 27... All we can see from the superscription there is that it is a psalm of David. It's impossible to know with any degree of accuracy at what part of David's life this psalm was written. But some who have devoted their lives to the study of the psalms believe that this was more than likely a time before David was anointed as king or took his seat on the throne. It was on the run from the demented King Saul, who was so threatened by David's popularity and his ability to slay the giant Goliath and the way the people rallied around him. Saul was stricken with an evil spirit and sought to end David's life. And so many believe that this was written in a time that is relevant to that period of David's life. So in 1 Samuel, there is an account that some scholars believe is probably the most likely place that this took place. So David was on the run. And he was assisted by a priest named Ahimelech who gave to David the showbread in the temple and also gave to David the the sword of Goliath as a means of defending himself against these people who were seeking to take David's life. So when Saul learned of the help that the priest Ahimelech had given to David, he was furious and he ordered the death of Ahimelech and all of his family. So here's what we read in 1 Samuel 22:16. But the king said to Ahimelech, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. Do you know what that means? There won't be another member of your family alive anywhere. We are going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And if you know anything about ancient culture, a king could do exactly that. He had the ability to do whatever he wanted to do with no checks and no balances. So Ahimelech was a priest and came from a family of priests, and it was no small request to kill off the Lord's servants. You have to remember, after all, that up until the time that Saul was made king of Israel, they were ruled in a theocracy, which means that God was their king, and he had anointed a family and a tribe of priests who would serve him and mediate between the people. And so when you were going to kill off a priest... You were fighting with God. And so this is what Saul has ordered to take place, is not only to kill Ahimelech, but to kill all of Ahimelech's family. There were some among Saul's servants who revered the priesthood and understood that they were picking a fight with God, and they said, we're not going to do that. Sorry, bud, you're going to have to get somebody else to do that. So Saul had a companion by the name of Doeg the Edomite, who was not an Israelite, who thought of no big thing to wipe out a few guys who served as priests. So here's what we read as a result of this help that Ahimelech gave to David in 1 Samuel 22:17-19. The king said to the guards who were attending him, "Turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death, 
because their hand also is with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing, and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priest of the Lord. Verse 18, Then the king said to Doeg, You turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephah. That was the garment that the priests would wear in their service to the king, verse 19, to the Lord, in verse 19. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, listen to this, both men and women, children and infants, oxen, donkeys, and sheep, he struck with the edge of the sword. These were the people who were chasing down David. These were the people who, at the king's command, had the ability to kill not only Ahimelech, but all of Ahimelech's family, all of the priests are going to the city of Nob, which was a city of priests, and basically brought near desolation to that entire city. We learned that, that the one escaped, and there's more to that down the road. That's not really our emphasis. But the emphasis I wanted to make here is that this is the threat that David was facing most likely when he penned the words we're going to read in Psalm 27. This was David's environment. This was his life, this was his difficulty. And I would bet to say that none of us have faced a difficulty quite like that, have we? You know, we're pretty quick to jump into the pity pot, you know, like Eeyore, and we, woe is me, and we sit there and just pour mud on ourselves because life is so hard and so unfair and it's so difficult. Well, it can be. And I don't want to make light of your difficulties, but the reality is what David faced in this time of his life and his faith in God that is that is conveyed through these words, have to be a motivating force to seek the Lord with all that we have. Fear is a very real enemy in our lives, isn't it? Fear of the unknown, fear of disaster, fear of sickness, fear of disease, fear of death, fear of people, fear of losing our jobs, fear of rejection, fear of criticism, fear of being alone, and the list goes on and on and on. In fact, you can look up hundreds and hundreds of phobias that relate how people can get captivated by their fears. Not like a little kid who's afraid of the dark and is going to grow out of that at some point in his life. We're talking about a fear that brings almost a paralysis to our life and affects everything about the life that we live. We need to recognize that fear exists. Listen carefully. Fear exists most strongly in the absence of faith. Fear exists most strongly in the absence of faith. Now, you share words like that with somebody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior and as a Lord, and I go, well, what does that mean? Fear exists most strongly in the absence of faith. Well, see, you and I possess a faith. We possess a hope. We possess a confidence. We possess an assurance that is unlike anything else that people in the world who are lost and without Christ could ever begin to understand. Fear for the Christian exists most strongly in the absence of faith. So this psalm is an expression of David's confidence in the Lord while facing tremendous hardship and certainly while he was running for his very life from the treacherous King Saul. Listen to me as I read, follow along if you will, as I read from Psalm 27. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14, but for the sake of time we can't get through there, we'll pause at the end of verse 6. There's just too much to get through 
in a single message. So begin with verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though the host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. For in the day of trouble He will conceal me in His tabernacle. In the secret place of His tent He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me, nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. So what we're going to see in the first six verses is this incredible confidence that David has in the presence of the Lord. But what we see in the middle portion of the psalm is the natural wavering that can take place when you and I face great difficulty. And so it isn't a duplicitous prayer that Paul is praying. He isn't on on two sides of the same fence. He isn't straddling the fence. He's basically expressing his confidence in the Lord's presence and the provision that God is going to make for him. And we'll explore that in greater detail next Sunday. So Roman number one, confidence in his presence. David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the, the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? And so David uses three words here to describe God's presence in his life. Now it's important to notice that David is not describing three things that God gives to us. He's describing three things that are a reality within God's presence in our lives. These are experiences that you and I as believers in Christ are to have as a result of our relationship with God. Not what God gives, but who God is. Number one, the Lord is my light. You see, He doesn't give light. He's not like a big searchlight that says the enemy's over there, you've got to be really careful, that's where they're at. That's not what He does. He is the light. The metaphor implies that God's presence automatically eliminates darkness. Now for David, this darkness is a very If you and I were anointed as the king of Israel and lived in this culture, then this would be our experience. But because we're not David, and this isn't our environment, what we have to be able to appropriate is this. Spiritually speaking, God is our light. 
Because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us, God's presence dispels the light from the darkness that we experience and our danger and our difficulty and our hardship. We can feel that we're in a very, very dark place and it is in that darkness that you and I experience this side of heaven surrounded by the presence of sin, you and I are to experience the presence of God that dispels the darkness. Not coincidentally, we just studied over the last several weeks Jesus' statement in John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, God's presence dispels the darkness so that we, like David, can say, I don't have to fear. This speaks of a spiritual reality, not only in our salvation that Jesus is the light of the world, but our ability to walk in the light of God's permanent presence with us wherever we go, no matter how dark it feels to us, God is our light. Number two, the Lord is my salvation. Now, he gives salvation, but that's not what David is talking about. He's talking about the fact that he is our salvation here. The word salvation refers to deliverance or victory. Spiritually speaking, Jesus is the deliverance from the penalty and the consequence of sin. Physically speaking, God is the victory or the deliverance of the enemy that David is going to experience in a physical world. David believed that God was going to physically rescue him from Saul's threats because God had anointed David as king and David believed that God would be faithful to that promise. In other words, David would say, I am immortal until God's will has been accomplished in my life. And you and I can say the same thing. Now, we we may not have a definitive declaration from the Lord like this, You are going to be the king and I will be with you and I will protect you. But we do know that God has promised to be with us every step of the way. That God will ultimately provide our deliverance spiritually regardless of how difficult our life might be. We know that this is not what life is all about. We know that this is temporary. We know that we are journeying to an eternity where we will be able to experience in fullness the victory and the deliverance that is ours through Christ. Now it's difficult sometimes to read these kinds of words <clears throat> and apply them to ourselves in saying, I'm in a real difficult situation, therefore God is obligated to deliver me from this circumstance. I don't think that's what we can say as a result of this verse. What I think we can say is, regardless of what we face, God who is our light is also our deliverer. Because, let's face it, we know a lot of good Christian people who have succumbed to the disease of cancer, who have faced incredible hardship in their life, and physically speaking, they weren't delivered, right? And some people can say, well, God wasn't faithful to His promise. Well, God is faithful to His promise all the time. When we die... When we pass from this world, we have the guarantee that we are instantly ushered into the eternal presence of God where we experience our deliverance regardless of what it is that we face in this world. On our deathbed, God is our salvation. He is 
our deliverer. And financial ruin, God is our salvation. He is our deliverer. Facing extreme hardship, God is our salvation. He is our deliverer. The reality that God is my light and God is my salvation does not change because of my circumstances. Isn't that good to know? Because God never changes. Number three, the Lord is my refuge. The word defense in this word in this verse is most often translated refuge. And so we see that God is my light, God is my salvation, God is my refuge. You know, we know a lot about refugees in our world. There's this need for a place of safety. There's a place where people can get fed and clothed and sheltered and cared for. And so our mind is automatically taken to this reality that God can provide a safe place for us somewhere out there. That's not what this means at all. God Himself is our refuge. He is the safe place. He is the tent. I've said this many, many times. When we're going through hardship, when we're really struggling, we need to metaphorically climb up into the lap of God and just get enveloped in His presence and experience the peace and the comfort that comes from the warm embrace of our Heavenly Father. I remember many times in my life when my kids were hurt. They skinned their knee. Big brother was mean. Something happened and they came crying. And there's not a lot you can do to immediately erase the pain they feel, right? But all you can do is you pull them up tight and you put their head in your neck, and you just reassure them it's going to be okay. I love you. It's okay. We'll take care of this. It's okay. Isn't that right? You've done that with your kids, haven't you? See, that's what God wants to do for you and I. That's what it means when we say that God is our refuge. He is our safety. He is our comfort. He is our security. Now, you and I also know that there are times when we don't experience that refuge to the degree that we need. Isn't that right? But has God changed? Has God gotten slack on His promise to be our refuge? Is God too busy with other people? You see, the deficiency in what we experience is never because God isn't doing His thing. It's because we've got stuff in the way of experiencing what God has already accomplished for us. Our sin, our rebellion, our lack of God consciousness, our determination to do life our own way on our own terms. It could be any number of things. Our preference is for the difficulty to be removed, but God's preference is that we seek Him and find Him to be sufficient for bringing peace and calm to our hearts. I've looked back over my life and I can count a dozen times where I could say I would never have chosen that for myself. Right? But God is sovereign. God allows these things to happen. Sometimes God orders these things to happen. And when they do, He is our refuge. Notice the result of God's preeminent presence in the life of David. He says, Whom shall I fear? Nothing and no one. David uses two different words here to describe this fear. This first one is fear, and we know that being afraid of something. The second one is dread. Dread is even worse, isn't it? It is a depth of fear that causes us to go, What am I going to do now? 
Have you ever been in dread? I know some of you have gotten that phone call from a doctor and your heart skips a beat. And it starts to beat really fast and your palms begin to sweat and you begin to get overwhelmed with the sense of what's going to happen. What if, what if, what if, why, how, what? Well, there's things that we can fear and there's things that we can dread. David, on the run from a treacherous king, can say, I need not fear and I need not dread. No matter how bad it looks on the outside, to the naked eye, to those who don't know anything about Christ, who can't account for spiritual truth, to those looking on the outside in, it looks pretty bleak, right? But to those who know the Lord and walk in His presence, we can say, we will not fear anything because of the confidence that we have in the presence of God. This is exactly what David is saying in this incredibly difficult part of his life. It would be good for us to be able to say that, wouldn't it? No matter what we face, no matter how hard it gets, we can say, I'm not going to fear and I'm certainly not going to dread because I'm confident in the presence of God. He is our light, He is our salvation, and He is our refuge. Therefore, we need not fear. Let's take a brief look at David's enemies here in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 speaks of a past enemy. Verse 3 speaks of his present enemy. So, verse 2, let me go back up and read that. Verse 2 says, When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. That's a past tense. Verse 3, Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. So the first thing that David talks about here is the evildoers. The evildoers are the enemies of God. These are very real people. These are flesh and blood enemies who are chasing David through the wilderness, hoping to find him so they can bring an end to his life. Now, for you and I, whether physical or spiritual, God's enemies are very real, and they seek to disrupt and destroy all that God stands for. Now, we fight a spiritual battle that we cannot see. It's out there in the heavenly places. We can't see the demons who come against us. We can't see the impact of the darkness, of the dark forces who are moving things against us. But what we can experience is the pawns that Satan uses, flesh and blood, to battle against us and the truth that we stand for. That's why we need to remember the words of Paul in Ephesians 6, for we struggle, for our struggles not with flesh and blood, not the people, but the rulers, the principalities, the spiritual forces of darkness. That is who the spiritual battle is really fought against, although physical people may be a part of that battle. So whether we're in a physical spiritual battle at the hands of other people or in a spiritual battle from a force that we cannot see, we need to remember that they seek to disrupt all that God stands for. They desire to wreak spiritual havoc in the lives of of God's people. I remember when Jesus was going to the Garden of Gethsemane and he asked his disciples to pray with him for an hour and Peter and the others fell asleep and Jesus came back and said, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. 
get up and pray so that when you fall, you can return and strengthen your brothers. You remember that verse, right? So I do believe that there is an occasion where, where God is petitioned by Satan to bring battle against us, and God says, yep, go ahead and do it. Now, we may not like that. We may not even agree with it, but I believe in the principle that we find in the, in the encounter that we have in Luke's words bears fruit to that being real. So these enemies, these physical enemies that are after David, he says they want to devour my flesh. It speaks of death, total defeat, like a wild animal eating the prey that they have just successfully brought to the ground. Have you ever felt like you faced an enemy like that? Something or someone that wanted to devour your flesh? That just wanted to absolutely and completely destroy you? Maybe not. And if that's not ever been your experience, we stand in a better position than David did when he had a real army that was seeking after him. But in David's present reality, in verse 3, he says that there is a host that is encamped against me. My heart will not fear. Though war rise against me in spite of all of this, I shall be confident. You know what a host is, don't you? It's a multitude of enemies. I remember reading in the stories about the birth of Christ and the heavenly host appeared and it was just uncountable angels who were celebrating the birth of the king. A host is more than you can number. And this is what David says. Even though there are more people out there that want to get me than I can even count, I will not fear. The war come against me in spite of this. I will be confident. It's an overwhelming number. They are encamped against David, meaning that David is their target. He is the goal. He's not going to be an accidental victim. He is the sole intent of the journey to end David's life. They want to bring war against him with all their might, with all their effort. And in this present reality, David says, my heart is at peace. My heart will not fear. I shall be confident. Confidence here means to have assurance, to trust, to be secure. David had every reason to be afraid. He faced insurmountable odds and possibilities. Death was at his door. And he is able to say, it's all good. I am resting in God as my refuge. You know, the same is to be true for us today. This is not something reserved for David or the spiritual elite. It is for God's children because he says, I am your refuge. As we think about the issues that we face in our life that cause us to fear, the things that we can't control, the things that are coming down the road that are completely unknown to us, we must be confident in his presence. I believe the New Testament correlation to this we find in Romans chapter 8. And we know that God causes all things, all things, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Hear it very carefully. It does not say all things that happen to you are good, 
It says all things that happen are for your good because they will bring about your growth spiritually and you being conformed to the image of Christ, which is to be our chief goal as Christians. And that is always a good thing. It continues in verse 30 and 31. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. God has done all of this for us. What then shall we say to those things? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one and no thing. We have to find a way to appropriate the spiritual truth in our lives when circumstances are causing us to be fearful to the extent that we don't experience the fullness of God's presence in our life. Make no mistake about it, this is not a natural occurrence. You will not do this on your own. This is a supernatural occurrence that is a result of our spiritual walk with the Lord where we recognize and understand and submit that He is our light, our salvation, and our refuge. As David reflected on God's presence in his life, especially in contrast to the perilous times that he is currently facing, his heart is set on one thing alone. David desires more God. Verse 4, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. Do you hear David say, God, take this away? Do you hear David say, God, the one thing I want more than anything else is to be set free from this enemy. It's not right. It's not fair. I don't deserve this. David's desire is more God. The phrase there that he uses, the house of the Lord, we have to understand from the Jewish perspective, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the tabernacle or the temple was the visible expression of the presence of the Lord. Now God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, all at the same time. Yet for the Jewish people, that tabernacle represented the very place where God lived. All that was in the tabernacle reflected the presence of God. So there was no real temple at this time. It was only the tent, the the building, the physical temple would come under Solomon's reign. David's on the run. He's cut off from the physical temple of God. His desire is for a time when he can enter into the temple and worship God to be able to offer sacrifices, to be in God's house. It was a regular part of David's life. It was a normal experience for the Jew to go to the temple all throughout the week to worship God. He's not asking to live inside the temple as a servant for the rest of his life, but he is asking to live in the presence of God permanently. God, I never want to be anywhere where I am not in Your presence. God, I want to sense Your shadow covering me everywhere that I go. I want to experience the richness and the beauty and the depth of Your presence in me every day of my life. For all of David's assuredness of God's presence as expressed already in these verses, he simply says, I want it even more. Notice he says, one thing I ask, one thing I shall seek that I may dwell in your house forever. 
David was absolutely and completely captivated by God's presence in his life. One commentator in reading this verse, verse 4 says, this is one of the most single-minded statements of purpose to be found anywhere in the Old Testament and it has no parallel. That's big words, isn't it? That's David's heart. That's David's deepest desire is more God. He says, one thing that I ask that I may seek. To seek signifies that I am making a commitment. This is the most important thing. It's not like I lost a couple of bucks and I'm going to look for the house for a couple of minutes and hope I find them. No, you lose something valuable. You want something bad enough and you will seek it with all of your heart and all of your life. It means to strive after something. The verb ask and seek indicate a posture of commitment that is expressed in devoted worship. To seek God is expressed in devoted worship. Israel is often chastised by God for seeking after idols, for striving to run from Him and to run from false gods. In Psalm 4.2, How long, O man, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? You see, they sought these idols more than they did a relationship with God Himself. David is simply stating what is most important in his life, the single most important thing, is seeking after God's presence. He has a purpose in mind for seeking God, and that is to behold His beauty. That word beauty means delightfulness. It is to behold the delightfulness of God. It's an expression of seeing the glory of God and the richness of God's kindness towards His people as reflected in the symbolism of the temple. Everything that was in the temple symbolized something about God. Something that God is or something that God has done. There was the Ark of the Covenant. God's commitment to His people. There was the altar of sacrifice where the Lord would atone for the sins. There was the golden lampstand that celebrated the attributes of God, the table of showbread, the mercy seat. All of these things were integral parts of the tabernacle and the Israelis' experience of worship. And David longs to see these things and to behold the delightfulness of what these communicate about God. Each of these symbolized God's relationship to Israel, His love, His provision, and for David being in the temple and seeing each of these things enhances the experience of His presence in David's life. Now for you and I today, we don't have that kind of stuff, do we? The pulpit, it's just a pulpit. It's a place for a guy to stand and preach. But we do have a cross. And when we look at the cross... We behold the delightfulness of God's expression of kindness to us. Isn't that right? That's what should happen when we see the cross. It should be a reminder of what God has done for us through Christ. David has a desire to meditate. He wants to behold the beauty of God's kindness towards His people. And he wants to meditate For you and I, meditate means to think about, to contemplate, but in this context, it means to inquire and to seek after God. And desiring God's presence even deeper than he knew it, and to behold the beauty that is expressed about God through the symbols in the tabernacle, 
David says, I want to come to you and I want to inquire of you and seek you even more. His desire is to find guidance from God, to be led, to renew his commitment to follow. For David, going to the temple to worship was a significant event. It wasn't about fulfilling a duty. It wasn't about being seen. It wasn't about networking and making contacts. It was about beholding the glory of God. It was about being immersed in the presence of God. Well, you and I have the privilege and the ability to worship God anywhere, at any time. Coming to God's house and being with God's people to worship Him should be a very significant event for you and I. This desire to dwell in the house of the Lord forever is expanded upon in verse 5. For in the day of trouble He will conceal me in His tabernacle. In the secret place of His tent He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. Now remember, since the tabernacle was the physical expression of God's presence, David could say that in the day of trouble, his being in God's presence would protect him from his enemies. Notice what God will do. David says, God will conceal me. David would be concealed in God's tabernacle, a place of refuge. It's not God saying, I'm going to make you invisible. I'm going to hide you from your enemies. What it means is is that being in God's presence would conceal David from the reality of the enemies that were around him. Think about that. You know, when we worship God, when we are in God's presence, doesn't everything just kind of drift away? That's what it means to be concealed in His presence. It also says that He will hide me in the secret place where no enemy could get to him. God would hide David. He will lift me up. God would lift him up on a rock, on a boulder, a place of safety, out of harm's reach, where his enemies could not touch him. This is what God does for us when we are immersed in his presence. We cannot do this for ourselves. This is what God does for us in our relationship with him. It is the byproduct of an intimate relationship with God. It is peace, it is safety, it is security, it is the absence of fear because God has concealed us and hidden us and put us up on a rock in His presence. There's a similar experience expressed in the New Testament, Philippians 4, 6 and 7, where the Apostle Paul writes these words to the church at Philippi, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, and let your, with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is the seeking of God, intentionally coming to Him, inquiring of Him, trusting Him, that His peace and His joy will come to us. This posture of worship that David has described now culminates in verse 6. Notice what David is going to do in verse 6. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. That word now has a double nuance here. David has prepared himself for worship now. It also speaks of a future forward-looking Deliverance of what God is going to do for David 
when God's will is accomplished. David's head has been lifted. In the now as he worships the Lord, and positionally in the now as God fulfills his faithful promise to David that he would be with him and he would protect him. David's head has been lifted up above his enemy. So we need to notice here, who did the lifting? You see, this is a passive verb, meaning we cannot lift our own heads. The lifting is only done by the work of the Lord. God does that as we rest in his presence, as we trust in his deliverance, as we give ourselves to him in worship, we rest and there is the absence of fear. And in that, we experience all that God is and all that God provides for us. But David's head will also be lifted up over his enemies in future victory. Worship is the pathway to trusting in God's future provision. Let me say that again. Worship is the pathway to trusting in God's future provision. It isn't the elimination of the circumstances but it is, it is experiencing the sufficiency of Christ in our relationship with him that enables those things to drift away in such a way that we have the absence of fear and a complete confidence in God. So this is our spiritual provision for us. We aren't David on the run from Saul, but we are God's children fighting a spiritual battle in the armor of the Lord, and God is the one who will lift us up. David will, also, will not only have his head lifted up by the Lord, but David will worship David will return to the tent to offer sacrifices for the victory that God has provided for him. And David will sing. I believe David is singing now, and he sings of a time when he can enter into the tabernacle with a jubilant singing for God's deliverance, which is a military expression. There was often a return from battle, and there were shouts of joy all throughout the village or the encampment, and it was a celebration of God doing what he did, delivering his people, and it was an expression of worship by the people and thanks to God. David says, I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. All of this is taking place in the midst of the most difficult period of David's life to date. From the outside looking in, David is being hunted by a king. He's chased by vicious warriors. David is a dead man except for the fact that God is on his side. Here's the question. Can we worship the Lord in the midst of great difficulty? Should we worship the Lord in the midst of our great difficulty and hardship? Are we so confident of God's presence that we can experience the lack of fear in all of life's unknowns? I want to tell you, it doesn't matter how big and strong you are, it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter how many verses you can quote. The only way you and I can experience the absence of fear in this life is to be hidden in the presence of God. To be hidden in the presence of God is an intentional journey that you and I make each and every day. Surrendering to Him, trusting in Him, committing to Him, and letting him and his presence take care of the reality of the hardships that we face. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you are a faithful God. We're so thankful that you don't leave us here to fend for ourselves. We thank you that you are so interested in every part of our life. God, would you help us to recognize your presence in us and around us?
Would you awaken us to be able to see your hand at work? Would you remind us through the indwelling spirit that you are there? Father, teach us how we cling to that which we cannot change or control and show us how we can rest and trust in you. Father, as we do that, we know that you will receive glory and honor from your children. We pray that we would be, like David, determined to sing, yes, I will sing with joy before the Lord. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for the ability to celebrate an eternal God with an eternal love and being able to live in your eternal presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship him.